Welcome to Sports Performance Radio, the science of athletic excellence. Welcome to Sports Performance Radio. I am your host, B. Chavez. And as always, I'd like to thank each and every one of you for tuning in again this month. Um, we have kind of an interesting show. Uh, I want to give just a little bit of background. I hate uh, ex- expanding these intros longer than they need to be, but this one I believe needs just a little bit of explanation. Um, as for the show, we have uh, a guest who has been with us before, and that is Mr. Andrew Triana. And Andrew is going to speak to us about his absolute pet subject, which is what he refers to as movement prep, which to most of you, to most of us, to even to me, um, we file that in our mind under the heading of warm-up. It's the what we do before our actual training session to make our training session better or safer or something. And Andrew's going to clear up all of that something and explain it in much greater detail than probably you've ever heard before. Um, so that is the show you're about to hear, and it is wonderful, amazing material. It's literally, and I do not joke, it's literally at points PhD caliber material. Uh, he's going to cover uh, biochemistry, the ins and outs of cellular activity, things that in truth you probably don't need to know. Many of you maybe don't even want to know, but it's and this is something we cover at one point in the show, it's nice to know that someone out there does actually know this. It's nice to know that things aren't just done in a wing and a prayer, and that someone has actually taken the time or is in the process of taking the time to work this stuff out. Um, Yes, everybody knows that a warm-up is efficacious. Yes, everybody knows vaguely what to do. But knowing exactly how and why it works potentially can make your decision-making easier. And, um, you know, if you know why it works, you might be able to exploit the parts you want more or less than others. So this is really, really, really super useful, applicable material, albeit it's buried in some real high-end technical jargon. But if you suffer through it, ah, suffer is a bad word. Andrew's really a great guy, and he, he really, really pours his soul into this. I don't want to say suffer, but if you're not a technophile about the biology and biochemistry, there may be dry moments in this. But, as I said, if you get through it, you will come out the other end with a brand new knowledge and appreciation of what a warm-up could be, should be, and you might want to be. So that's the show you're about to hear. Now, what I want to explain is the grander picture. My intention with this show and a number that will be forthcoming, not necessarily in immediate succession, is to bring to you a series of shows talking about each and every aspect of training, for instance, warm-up, for instance, you know, power production, perhaps hypertrophy, perhaps um, you know, weight loss, weight gain, any aspect of training that you can imagine, and have them ultimately tie back to the concept of MRV, maximum recoverable volume, which is all the buzz at the moment. Uh, not really a new concept, but it's a concept that is just ubiquitous and unavoidable. It's, um, you know, just generally the idea that there is a maximum amount of work that you can survive. And 
there's an ideal amount somewhere below that that you should be doing. And each one of these components, your warm-up, your base training, your speed, your flexibility, your cardiovascular training, and on and on and on, depending on what variety of athlete you are, each one of those components is going to erode into your maximum recoverable volume, your available energy, if you will. So the idea here is to do a show on each of these components. Um, some of them have actually already been done. And then, in a way, go back and tie them together into a unified theme that is how they relate to the overall organism and the overall recovery of said organism. So this is the first show in that series. Um, you probably won't hear much more about that quote series until I have enough of the shows completed to go back and sort of bundle them together and say, if you want to know all about maximum recoverable volume, listen to shows X, Y, Z, and in this order, and you'll get a bigger picture, grander picture. So that's where I'm going with all of this as a big picture, you know, 2017 theme. But what you're about to be presented with is everything you could possibly ever want to know, and about 50% more, on the subject of movement prep. So buckle in, <laughs> get ready. Andrew is literally going to unleash the hounds of hell in terms of science and detail in regards to movement prep, why it should be your warm-up, how it should be your warm-up, how you should develop it, nurture it, talk to it, feed it, and make it your own. So this is a really great guy, some really great information. I do indeed hope you stick around and listen to this to the very end because it can change everything about the way you train and the way you perform. So with nothing more from me, we're going to cut to a phone interview with Mr. Andrew Triana on the subject of movement prep as it relates to your total overall ability to recover, or MRV. You're listening to Sports Performance Radio. Evil Genius Sports Performance is now accepting a limited number of new clients. If you would like a consult, please email via the Team Evil GSP website. All right, dear listeners, we are live on the phone with somebody that has been with us before, but damn it, we just can't get enough. We are speaking to Andrew Triana. Andrew, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Happy as always to be on the show with you, B. Oh, it, there's the, you, the, the, the pr- pleasure and privilege is mine and my listeners. Um, I am so excited. Uh, you know me. I am a little bit curmudgeon, a little bit uh, disdainful of the uh, scholastic uh, category, the scholastic uh, environment, but uh, people like you give me hope. Uh, the fact that you might actually wear the moniker of Ph.D. and Doctor of Exercise Science or something of that nature makes me ever so slightly hopeful for the future, my friend. So never, never feel like you don't belong here. Thank you, and I really appreciate that coming from you specifically, because we all understand how your views are in the millennials. <laughs> but uh, without True. too much ado, so uh, I'm going to be talking about something that's really near and dear to my heart. Uh, Broderick's mentioned before, I'm the movement prep guy, and uh, it's just something that like I think is essential. So I'm going to start with two overarching themes that I want everyone to keep in mind as we go uh, through the entire podcast today. So the question I'm going to be answering is, uh, what are and how can we control the effects that your movement prep has on maximum recoverable volume and training as a whole? So 
the first thing I want everyone to keep in mind is it's really the internal environment in which you perform the exercise that you're looking to seek adaptation from, not inherently the exercise itself. So you can perform the same two work sets on squats on two different days, and they have a completely different uh, feedback that they're giving to your brain. So it's really the environment in which you perform the exercise, not the exercise itself. And uh, the second one is a little more scientific. Just everyone needs to remember that in chemistry, biochemistry, and all sciences, there's no absolutes. So lipid oxidation and glucose metabolism and all of the bioenergetic uh, mechanisms we're going to be talking about today, they're on a sliding scale. So the closest you can get to one end is 99% of one object and 1% of the other. There's never going to be a complete 100 to zero, and it's always going to be a small percentage of multiple different things um, coming together at once. So as, just keep those in mind as we talk about the things we're going to talk about. So I, uh, because- I'm really glad... I'm really glad you, you touched on those as a starting point. I personally wouldn't have thought of that, but um, the, the the idea that the very same set can have two entirely different outcomes based on predication is uh, is really in itself just incredibly vital knowledge, and uh, I'm excited to hear you move forward on that in itself. Cool. Well, it's true because it's really key, and uh, as I talk about the mechanism of of actions associated with the movement prep I do. I'm also giving everyone tips and what lens to look through and how to replicate it on your own because it's truly an individualized approach to get the adaptations that you're seeking. So your only limiting factor is your objective assessment of yourself. Like how far are you willing to go and how much are you willing to put into it prior to even touching the weight. So um, just a couple morals involved with programming for movement prep before we get to the sciencey stuff is like I said before, the movement prep is the catalyst for your training, not an independent reaction. So it's going to feed the prerequisites for you to get the meat and potatoes. This is the salad you eat before you get to the dinner. For most of the training year, you want to attack uh, like what I refer to as the ATP aerobic cycle. It's essentially the idea that the ATP system and your aerobic systems are tied together in opposites. So kind of the idea that opposites attract. They have inherent abilities that impact each other and they work cyclically. So it's your ability to, in simple terms, use energy and then restore it through your own means. You want to train that throughout almost the entire year. And I say to attack them through impulse and repeatability. And that'll make more sense later. And then finally is more of a logic-based moral, but an important one nonetheless. It's to pick modalities that reflect the energy demands, the movement demands, and the timing demands of your sport. If you're picking movement prep just for the sake of picking cool things to do and it has no correlation to your sport, you're missing one of the most key, like, functions of movement prep to prepare you for it. So those are just three things to really keep in mind when you're programming long-term and short-term. And then uh, before I get into the mechanism of actions, uh, is there anything you want to say? Uh, There's a thousand things I want to say, but I don't want to drag the conversation particularly far off point. Um, one one of the things I will do is interject some different language. Um, you are extraordinary at what you do, but very often you speak in um, such uh, academic speak that every occasionally I wonder if some of the listeners aren't a little uh, off-put or even confused. So when, when he says that, um, you know, a given movement prep or something uh, potentiates or does all the, any of these different things, what, what he's saying is, and this is an incredible dumb down that I'm sure he will clear up later, is that by doing whatever this group of work or this, this group of actions are, it is setting the stage 
in such a way on a neurological and biochemical and energy pathway uh, level that it then makes everything you do in your, quote, regular workout infinitely more effective. It's a stage-setting scenario. You're setting the plate so that the dinner is serpable. Uh, would, you, would you say that's a fair dumbed-down language, my friend? Absolutely. Like, like you and I both know, like we don't like to say absolute. So I don't want to say that movement prep will make your training better, but it will make your training better. At the very least, at the very least, you could say that you are in fact doing all the things that you think you need to do to give it the hundred percent efficacy or the highest possible efficacy. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah. So what the, what we're talking about here in you know movement prep is a much better term for specific war, warm up. And that specific warm-up is for the purpose not of these esoteric, like, oh, I want to raise my heart rate or I want to raise my core temperature. It's No, it's I want to make everything I'm about to do as effective as I am able. Exactly. I'm trying to paint a picture of value. Exactly. And so then the conversation moves forward. Exactly. You can't truly appreciate what's taught in your freshman anatomy class, like in like the generic freshman year of all bachelor programs, because you haven't gotten the stuff prior to that to truly appreciate the value of the information you're getting. So that's why so many people have found like freshman year courses of anatomy if they're basic sciences. You can potentially be missing out on adaptation from your normal training by not appreciating setting the stage prior to it. Agreed. So, so uh, next, I'm basically going to go into defending the mechanism of actions behind movement prep and the drivers of what's actually causing the change uh, in the training that you want. So I have Excellent. two more concrete mechanisms. And then two mechanisms I'm going to like to argue a little bit more. So uh, we're going to go in order of importance. The first one is AMPK. Uh, everyone's talked about this, and I have a two-pronged approach on how I think we're going to be attacking this. So ultimately, the drivers for AMPK are going to be acute hypoxia and cellular changes within the cell itself. So like organelle changes, positioning changes of certain enzymes and proteins. So we're talking structural changes and acute physiological changes due to hypoxia related to training. So hypoxia is simply the, uh, I mean, in simplest terms, it's choking, but it's just any, uh, <laughs> it's just any uh, state in which you have less oxygen than you need. We're going to go with acute first. And I'm talking about the paradoxical effect of hypoxia on substrate availability. Basically what that means is it's not a hundred percent understood or correlated, but we all kind of in the science world know it as a semi-fact that in lower states of oxygen uh, for a cell, ATP is going to be upregulated in type 1 fibers. So this is important because ATP is obviously the substrate you're going to need to perform exercise. That is the bare-bones material you need to create a skeletal contraction. And if we're talking strength athletes, uh, not only is aerobic fibers typically, or oxidative fibers, type 1, whatever you want to call them, going to be the limiting factor, but these can also, in strongman, be the difference between getting one to two extra reps to get you the event win. So I don't want to get too specific in the sport now, but I just want to paint the picture as it doesn't seem important when you're testing your one rep max, but it's definitely important to facilitate a higher one rep max to have type 1 fibers that can produce a lot of ATP and that can actually perform at the same level as type 2 fibers. Everyone loves training type 2 fibers. It's naturally inherently fun. But type 1 fibers are really going to promote 
your type 2 fibers to do the work they do better. And that's the picture we're painting throughout the entire thing. That hypoxic effect that we're talking about, this is just like breathing heavy, you're working hard, you're going from a low resting heart rate from throughout the day to training right away. These changes are going to like, uh, cause differences in oxygen and CO2 levels. So now just by starting to do work really quickly, you're creating this hypoxic. So just by doing any type of training right away, you're already going to have an increase in ATP. So that's the acute paradigm behind hypoxia. There's a chronic one that's slightly less uh, noted, I would say, but still important. It's basically going to preferentially choose to take your muscle fibers that can switch. So these are known as, like, you can call them uh, type X fibers. They have the ability to kind of transmorph into one direction or another, uh, meaning type 1 or type 2, based on the incoming stimulus and stresses. So obviously... Uh, we're can, gonna can, can I, or not we. Sorry. Can I interject there a question? And this is actually a question from me, very specifically on what you just said. Um, is that is that an actin myosin isoform translation? You got re, uh, right to my next sentence. So, okay, uh, I'm sorry. I apologize entirely. Uh, but no, as soon as best. you said that, as, as soon as you said that, I thought it, that's a, that's a migration of protein isoforms based on training environment. Yes. Absolutely. So uh, just to kind of clarify what uh, Broderick just said, myosin isoforms are like the – you're not going to get this in your basic anatomy class, but not all myosin are the same, obviously. They're all different. There's myosin heavy chains, short chains, long chains. And uh, those are like the precursors in your skeletal muscle cell that are going to dictate the skeletal muscle cell's environment. So myosin isoforms inherently dictate ATPase activity, so the enzyme that allows you to use your ATP correctly. So that's like the precursor of what he's saying. So what I'm about to respond to him is these aerobic my, uh, myosin isoforms are going to increase the actomyosin ATPase activity. So the myosin isoforms aren't changing. This is a response to incoming stress, and the chronic stress coming in is what's going to cause the change in ATPase activity. So it's truly enzymatic not structural in this portion. Does that answer your question, B? It, it does. It does. Um, I'm, I'm sure we went a little a little beyond the, the listener's immediate need for, for knowledge, but it, it does, and that's um, an, a solid study uh, subject for me. I'm trying to get up to speed on that and try and be able to join the conversation with you, my friend. So, um, so continue. actually, I, I just read a paper on this last week or two weeks ago when I was in school. So if anyone's looking for it, go on to Google Scholar and search paradoxical effects of hypoxia on endurance training or something to that effect. But those are all the keywords you'll need so that you can look at the research that I looked at to create these ideas. That's just one paper, but it's a pretty damn good paper. That's the first-pronged approach to my AMPK adaptation through movement prep. The second one, like I said previously, is going to be more structural and it's going to be happening more in the cell. So training is going to act on the cell's ability to detect AMP to AATP ratios. So this is through CBS, which is a domain in the cell that allows it to sensitize changes. So what, what's actually happening is we are going to be increasing the sensitivity of these CBS domains to react to AMP to ATP ratios. And this is chronic in the sense that we are constantly coming in, let's say you're training four days a week, before you even get to the real, like we said, training, you're already starting to deplete ATP. This isn't a bad thing. This is ultimately a good thing. 
although I'll talk later, might short-term be bad because of novel stuff. But that's We'll get to that later. But I just want you guys to understand that we're actually changing your body's ability to notice differences. And that's a minutia, and that's an extremely efficient adaptation because these domains, like I said, CBS, they're not necessarily going through structural changes. They're getting better at their job. So they're getting paid the same wage to do more work, essentially, uh, in simple terms. This downstream is going to increase your ability to store glycogen. It's going to increase mitochondrial biogenesis, which is the production of more mitochondria and the growing of mitochondria that are pre-existing. This is going to cause positive structural changes in the cell. So already, just by increasing that sensitization process, you're starting to get structural changes elsewhere in the cell. So that tells us how important the AMPK pathway truly is, like not just health, but performance. This process is going to occur through fat oxidation. So beta oxidation is going to be increased by uh, inhibiting CPT1. So carnitine palmitotransferase 1 is the rate-limiting enzyme or factor in beta oxidation. So what's happening is acetyl-CoA carboxylase is going to upregulate, so like, like I said pre, uh, prior with the paradoxical effects of hypoxia, this is an enzymatic adaptation. So we're increasing the enzyme that we need to inhibit the rate-limiting factor. So right there, you're going to be able to increase the time in which you oxidize lipids and the efficiency at which you would continue to do that over time. So these are obviously going to, like, you're already starting to create an environment that improves insulin sensitivity, that improves your potential to produce ATP and recover from the usage of ATP, which is part of that ATP cycle, you need to not just be efficient at using ATP per contraction, but you also need to be in good enough shape, quote unquote, to reproduce high amounts of ATP over and over and over again. So that's what repeatability is. You've probably heard me mention that before. So Absolutely. we're creating Absolutely. So we're creating a cell now just through training that is preferentially, like, changed to be better at training. So this two-pronged approach of AMPK is not just making you better at being able to use the enzymes and ATP and recover from that you need to train hard, but it's actually morphologically changing your internal cells to be better at that stress. So on the very, very bare-bones level, this is just what any type of adaptation is, like any stressor, like general adaptation uh, syndrome that you want to talk about. But I just want to highlight why it's important and what's changing and why this specific type of movement prep can make you even better at your sport because you can attack the favorable pathway to make you better in multiple different ways. So weight training in and of itself is well-renowned for using AMPK. So now before you even get to your typical resistance training, you've already hit that pathway and facilitated acutely and chronically over time to make you better at your sport by improving ATP rates, recovery of ATP rates, and the ability to produce more ATP in a short amount of time. So some of the other structural changes that are happening in the cell that I didn't mention are GLUT4. So you are either going to have increased amount of GLUT4 receptors or changing of current GLUT4 receptors to be in a more advantageous spot to get glucose in the cell. The reason I put emphasis on or is because we're not necessarily positive which, if both are happening, but for some reason, GLUT4 is becoming more efficient. Those are the two ways in which you can do so. And finally, MCD, which uh, for the life of me, I can't remember what it stands for, but essentially it's the antagonist to acetyl-CoA carboxylase. So MCD, 
is going to be decreased in the cell. So the enzyme that is going to facilitate your rate-limiting enzyme is now being decreased as well. So that's a two-pronged effect on AMPK, but as well as beta-oxidation. So you're increasing the enzyme that stops beta-oxidation, or increasing the enzyme that helps beta-oxidation, and decreasing the enzyme that stops beta-oxidation. So even if you're looking to lean out, whatever your goals are, get stronger, get faster, whatever it is, AMPK is the primary pathway you want to be targeting for inherent sports performance. So next I'm going to move on to VEGF, but is there anything you wanted to clear up? I know that was kind of a whole textbook in five minutes, Broder. <laughs> um, unfortunately, and, and here's – and I, I, I mean – ever so seriously, not to besmirch my listening audience, but I, I followed along with all of that, but only because you, you uh, lambast me with this stuff on a regular basis, and I've been forced to study up on the subject. Um, the, the intricacy of the biochemistry might well be beyond the common trainee and even the uncommon trainee, but the moral of the story is pretty straightforward, that the actions you're about to take are going to downregulate the bad pathways, upregulate the good pathways, making you more efficient at burning fat and have a ability to regenerate fuel pathways quicker, which is your your version of repeatability. It's it's the ability to generate or to regenerate the necessary energy to repeat the action you just undertook. You would agree with that? Absolutely. And uh, I kind of leave the science out there. Is I'm not just trying to flaunt that I'm more intelligent. I want to show everybody that these, like, you can really take it as far as you want. You can take it at face value and you're saying good things are getting better, bad things are getting worse. But I want to try to entice people to look deeper and deeper into the science. Because science is only going to grow by people embracing it, appreciating it, and giving their own lens. I look at the same exact research that Broderick, that Mike Isertel, that Lyle McDonald, that all these great geniuses look at. We all look at the same physiology. But we're all different human beings with different lenses. And that's why we're allowing to have talks like this on the same subject where everyone gives such uh, unique and advantageous viewpoints for everyone to learn from. So just like I want to get people out there to learn on your own, use your own ob- like objective lens, look at science, and create your own reasoning and logic and share it with others. That's the only way we're going to continue to grow as a community. You know, I, I want to interject something right there that's it's, it's off topic of the conversation, but you left just such an amazing uh, segue for it. Um, this, this idea that, like, you might be, you know, intellectually intimidating, you know, other people or something of that nature. Um, I find that just such an incredibly foolish uh, mindset on both sides of the coin. Uh, as an example, I personally know uh, much less than I wish I did about quantum mechanics. I, I know it's completely off the topic of this, but I, I just, I wish I had more understanding of it. I wish I had more time to study it. And every once in a while, I get a little free time, and I will listen to uh, Michiko Keiku or, or Dan Green or one of these really great minds on the subject. And instead of being intimidated, I actually just feel relieved. Like, oh, thank fucking God. There's really some smart people taking up the slack making up for my ineptitude, and they're, they're, they're thinking about this shit, and it's going to be okay. And I don't really walk away with any new knowledge, but I walk away with this almost like religious relief where I just go, oh, fuck, it's going it's to be okay. There's, there's, we got our best people on that shit. It's going to be fine. And I think that all of the hundred people that listen to this podcast 
should feel exactly the same way listening to you. Maybe they'll never have the time to buy and read a biochemistry textbook, but they should feel good in the knowledge that a really smart motherfucker like you is doing it. And every once in a while, you'll come around and tell them what they need to know. And to me, that just makes the world just so much better and easier, and we can each do what we're supposed to do, and then we can have just little communications and little communes, and the shit all gets spread around just right. Um, so, completely off topic, but I think completely relevant, and I think it's a, a worldview that more people should adopt. Uh, speech over. <laughs> no, it's true. That's how, like, scientists can make the world a better place. But uh, we'll just move on to the vascular endothelial growth factor and stuff. Ah, but, um, or good. I mean, if you're Broderick, you might know it as a vascular per- permeability factor. Uh, but, but, us old thing. folk, very, I was going to say us old folk, go ahead, rub it in, pal. <laughs> so whatever you want to call it, this is the uh, protein factor that essentially is going to be restoring oxygen in hypoxic conditions. So I'm getting into a little bit of the antagonist of what I previously talked about, and uh, it's going to be mainly responsible for uh, increasing angiogenesis, which is like vascular proliferation, uh, synovial lining of the blood vessels, basically like little capillaries showing up in your forearms when you get extra lean and you're doing some good stuff for yourself. This is like ultimately the factor that's allowing that process in the short term. So I'm going to talk about VEGF from a little bit of a different perspective. A lot of people know about it. It's very, very famous, especially in the cancer world. But um, it has kind of two faces to it. So the first phase I kind of talked about in the AMPK pathway, it's a direct respondent to hypoxia. So whenever there's decreased oxygen, it's one of its jobs is going to be to make sure oxygen is being delivered to that tissue. So I first came across the EGF when I read about Katsu training. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with Katsu training, it's the original type of uh, concept that led to blood flow restriction occlusion training. So um, they were tying off people that got into car accidents with traumatic injuries. They were tying off extremely atrophied limbs, and they were seeing 350 times uh, the growth factors to the affected area versus normal training. So this is where VGF or VEGF originally caught my eye. So it got a very, very acute job and a very important acute job. Without VEGF, hypoxia would go basically unlimited and you would choke to death within, like, the onset of anywhere near your max heart rate. So that's extremely important, and it's going to have a big effect on uh, training immediately after the hypoxic condition. So let's paint the picture that you're doing, let's say, prowler pushes. And within the first two minutes, you've pushed a 1,000 feet already. You're really, really, really huffing and puffing. You're laying on the floor, and VEGF is in the process of its acute phase right there. It's bring oxygen to the tissues that need it, and it's allowing blood flow to open up in a healthy way so that you can continue to recover faster. So now, VEGF starts to dissipate from its original intent, its acute job, and you feel amazing in five minutes. Part of this is because VEGF also acts on an axis with some other peptides and hormones. So these are going to include IGF, growth hormone, and other somatropic-like factors. It's got like a similar family, and it kind of acts in a cohesive community with these factors. So part of what's going to make you feel good in a chronic sense with vascular endothelial growth factor is that uh, when it's in conjunction with growth hormone, IGF, and other somatropic-like uh, proteins, it can be 
indirectly or directly responsible for powerful growth and maturation of cells. So um, to not get too much into other stuff, IGF-1 is going to proliferate myo, uh, myogenitor cells. So myogenitor cells like eventually are going to turn into a muscle fiber. So this is kind of acting on another angle. It's going to take that same proliferation, but this is going to be, I guess you would call them like hemogenitor cells. So this is going to occur in the blood and the capillaries and stuff like that. So it's not just setting the stage for growth on one angle. It's acting with other factors to create growth on an entire organ tissue level. So it's not just one thing that's going to be growing. It's aiding you in multiple things growing. So this is advantageous because let's imagine you, in a perfect world, strictly lactic bicep curls. And you develop this one bicep that's extremely powerful in one energy system. That wouldn't really be too advantageous because of what happens if you step into another energy system now? Now that bicep has almost zero uh, validity or use. This is creating an entire picture of growth this way. So movement prep is really going to be facilitating you to grow on multiple levels. Not just a, uh, in a muscle sense, it's going to help you grow aerobically, vascularly. It's going to help you recover in between exercises better. You're going to become more efficient at utilizing oxygen and uh, releasing CO2 when needed. I, I do have a question right there, and I, I'm, I'm hoping that the listeners are, are thinking the same thing. Um, obviously, all of those components go toward, uh, quote, health or fitness or a kind of a systemic effectiveness, but at what point do you start to, to violate some of the concepts of uh, sports specificity and in terms of, you know, focusing on specific energy pathways that are going to be relevant to your particular athletic endeavor? Is, is that relevant here, or are we on too fine of a level to worry about uh, a step that large? So that's the kind of what I'm going to talk about next. So that's more of, uh, you're, we're going to move into, like, programming modalities and what you're actually doing on a specific level. But I think your question is going to be, VEGF is going to respond locally and systemically to the task at hand. So let's say the VEGF response compared to, like, a left leg adduction is going to be very, very different than if it's, like, a high-low prowler push suicide method. It's still going to be responding, but the way it responds is different. And that is in, like, the more uh, – finer points of, like, programming for movement prep, because these things that I'm talking about, these mechanisms of actions, are going to happen regardless. Even if you walk into the gym and just did an empty barbell for a set of 10, on a small scale, you're still going to be activating AMPK, VGNF, or VGF, and the other things we're going to be talking about in the next few minutes. But we're trying to get into the specificity, like Broderick said, of where, how, and why they're being active. Very good. Okay. Absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. So, again, it comes down to a situation where um, you're, you're dealing with inevitabilities and you're simply trying to tailor them to the highest possible efficacy. That, that's, um, that's absolutely monumental. That's exactly what I want to hear. Absolutely. So, like, uh, forgive me if the bicep curl reference wasn't as great as it was intended to be, but what I was trying to say was, like, yes, it's inevitable, but it has to be inevitable in a way that it can make you better. If it's inevitable, everyone's getting it. How can you take that inevitability and morph it to be a little bit better for what you do? So exactly. EGF and uh, AMPK are my two big hitter mechanisms of action. These are definitely happening. Uh, we understand to an appreciable degree how, why, 
and to an even less appreciable degree, we can directly control them with some efficacy. We can do uh, manipulate those as needed for your goals when we want to. The next two are things that I'm going to argue a little more uh, as to if they are actually happening or not. But uh, anecdotally, I am in line with the fact that they are, and I'm just kind of excited to bring them out there because these are two mechanisms of actions that I haven't heard spoken about much in uh, training, especially strength sports. So the first one is going to be PGC1-alpha-lipin. So this is a pretty small transcriptional factor that's secreted, or I wouldn't say secreted, it's uh, activated by environmental changes and adaptive thermogenesis. So obviously this is related to training. Um, the and and I, believe, I, believe, I believe I've also read that um, actually uh, even uh, in temperature, even ambient temperature that then impacts core temperature has an impact there, I, I believe. Absolutely. So like when I uh, – like adaptive thermogenesis is essentially anything that is changing in your environment internally, externally, uh, whether you ate something, whether you're doing something. Something is changing temperature-wise so that your body is now using heat, uh, expending heat. Uh, without Very good. too much description on what's actually happening. <laughs> so the reason this is important, one, it's uh, inversely correlated with type 2 diabetes. So that in and of itself is a good thing. But this is also going to increase uh, mitochondrial biogenesis and fiber remodeling towards the oxidative side. But again, this is a little different in how it's going to do it. This is We're talking like in the cell's nucleus. This is transcriptional and translational factors now that we're talking about. So it's actually going to increase mitochondrial biogenesis, which I described before, and the ability to remodel fibers, like the X fibers, into one direction or another. This is happening almost from the inside out now. So imagine that, like, you're telling the engine of the car to do what it's going to do ahead of time. So before you turn left, the car is anticipating the left, and it's going to make you easier to turn left when you need to turn left. So uh, this is a small portion of it. But I just wanted to highlight it and show it to others because it's extremely important because it's almost improving your AMPK pathway through an even third mechanism of action. It's on the inside. We're talking transcription translation now. So that's extremely important, and it just complements AMPK in a very, very good way. So if that is actually being uh, activated and facilitated through any type of positive movement prep that we can talk about prior to training, that's only going to be amplified in your training, and you're only going to get more out of your training. So the last one I wanted to talk about is actually almost a completely different part of the body altogether. So this is brain-derived neurotropic factor, and uh, ah. I'm gonna. This is an extremely important one when we when we're talking sport, because so I'm gonna give everybody a little bit of background. It's BDNF comes from the neuroplastic region of research, and essentially it got famous in plas neuroplasticity because it was the main driver in being able to teach old dogs do tricks, essentially. That's the overarching theme of neuroplasticity. So BDNF is allowing to change neuronal pathways that are set in stone to myelinate them to do new things or to allow them to branch off and include new things. Or even, like, uh, neuroplasticity has even been shown to uh, – excuse me – has even been shown to allow for something called compensatory masquerade to happen – so you can actually change where neuronal pathways exist in the brain. So uh, essentially what's happening, BDNF can take the neurons that are occurring on one portion of like the medulla to the exact other portion of the medulla 
if those neurons get damaged. So essentially, BDNF can preferentially choose which neurons can do a task within a certain portion of the brain based on, like, efficiency or we don't really know why it happens, but we know it can happen, and that is called compensatory masquerade in neuroplasticity. So if anyone wants to Google Scholar that, it's an extremely uh, cool and interesting paradigm that's happening in the brain. So that's a little bit of a sidetrack. But BDNF is going to respond to uh, neural excitation. So stimulus comes in, neurons get excited, NMDA receptors are activated, calcium is allowed to be influxed into the cell, and this is going to secrete BDNF. So this is going to allow you to learn better. This is going to set the stage for you to have more um, effective sport-specific skill learning. But what makes it extremely interesting, what ties it into exercise, is um, the insulin sensitivity. So DAG, if you're unfamiliar with it, is diacylglycerol, and it's one of the contributing uh, molecules, you could say, in insulin resistance. Although there's many theories, this is one theory. So diacylglycerol is going to inhibit, inhibit nuclear factor KB. Nuclear factor KB is uh, a small cytokine-like protein that's secreted in the cell, and it kind of messes up some tasks. So nuclear factor KB, follow me here, is inversely correlated with BDNF. So if insulin sensitivity is facilitated through the AMPK pathway, we now would theoretically have a stage where BDNF can more likely come out. So if we have the novel experience of movement prep happening, so let's say we're going into a peaking phase for a sport, and I start implementing my most sport-specific skilled exercises, that's going to have a novelty effect. But that novelty effect is not going to go without calcium inflowing to the cell. So if we take a novelty-based exercise or group of exercises or movement prep workout and pair it with the insulin sensitizing effects of actually exercising, I can actually think and foresee an increase in your ability to learn at that very moment when you get to your actual resistance training. And obviously, this opened a whole new door for peaking, for improvement of skill on a completely neurological level. So finally, if there's going to be an increased ability to utilize BDNF, this gives, like, the coach or the programmer an invaluable tool to choose for sports specificity. So if we can actually quantify that this is happening to some degree, you can pick and choose which sports-specific exercises have the most transfer and then you can make them have even more transfer. Or to play devil's advocate, you can utilize BDNF effects due to training in your most off-season portion of training and then have the moves with the least transfer that you would utilize have some transfer. So either way, I'm trying to paint the picture that uh, movement prep on multiple different levels can actually help you learn the skills you need to learn better for your sport. Now, being, being who I am and, you know, the often, especially being on the opposite side of the microphone playing devil's advocate, I wonder immediately how often people rather, well, almost exclusively, explicitly, unintentionally implement some of these strategies to the negative, where they're actually uh, upregulating neuroplasticity to the, to the negative to learn, to learn inappropriate skills or to poorly reinforce effective or transferable skills. Absolutely. So if you've read any, if anyone's read any Russian literature, 
they're like transfer and training is one of like the biggest things, especially with Anatoly Bondarchuk, who's a personal favorite of mine. Sure. So, for example, if you're using a sport to get better at another sport, so let's say you're using powerlifting to get better at football, which I'm not bashing, I'm just using an example uh, based on commonality. Are you really doing the best thing you can to be the best football player possible? And uh, without getting too much into it, would it make sense to choose a sport to get better at another sport inherently without even putting anything to it? Would you use one task to get better at another task? Or would you just implement tactics that would make you directly better at the task you want to perform? Um, so, yeah, absolutely. You can easily use BDNF in a poor way as well if you're not aware. That's what I'm trying to bring is awareness to these things, that programming actually matters to an extremely high degree. Like You shouldn't be using a coach who isn't um, thinking on that level. It doesn't have to be this deep, but you should objectively be able to look at, is there a positive reason that I'm programming this for my athlete? Is he actually going to get something out of this six months down the line? Just because we're six months out doesn't mean you can bullshit. So, um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Forethought is the key to all programming efficacy without question. Yeah, you don't even have to be the most intelligent coach to be a good coach. If you care enough to have a reason behind what you do and you are logical enough to look at a calendar as you do it, you could have the least scientific reasons possible to the most successful program. Agreed. So – um, next I'm going to start, so now that I've kind of defended movement prep a little bit and like highlighted exactly what, how, and where it's going to make you better, I'm going to start talking a little bit on lenses to look through on how to implement it and actual implementing, implementing, uh, strategies. The next way, the next thing I'm going to talk about is modalities. So I say there's three different P's that you want to look through before you start programming. So it's potentiate, prepare, and put in the bank. So potentiate is, like, the first one. Makes sense. It's, like, the name kind of gives it away. You're trying to facilitate an upcoming stimulus, whether that stimulus is today, today's resistance training, right after your movement prep, whether it's tomorrow's, whether it's next week's or this weekend's. You can make yourself better in time over the next couple of days by doing something today. This is going to have, like, low to moderate volume, and you're going to pick moves that, like I said previously, have the most transfer. So, um... Earlier I said impulse as one of the key things to train. Broderick and I have talked about this multiple times. I'm sure other people have. Impulse is uh, largely volitional. It's essentially your reaction time, for lack of a better term, but it's a more specific version of reaction time. And if this is going to be a habitual thing or a volitional thing, it's also going to become habitual. So if you, for the potentiation part of your training, if you're thinking impulse it can be a habit, then you're going to be implementing tasks that force you to do impulse habitually. So you're going to be doing multiple, uh, repeat, like, repeatable bouts of impulse. So, for like, you can do a jump. You can do a throw. But you're going to be doing multiple things in a row that force you to make being explosive, being attentive a habit. And that's one of the biggest parts of potentiating is it's largely habitual. Because, like, especially if it's at the end of a program, there's not much room left for adaptation. Very, very minimal changes can happen in a week as far as like structural, as far as actual performance, but habitual is something that you can change in a couple of hours, and it will actually change your performance. So potentiating is the cool one, but it's also the tricky one because you have to understand that the majority of potentiation is habitual with only a small portion being actually physiological. All the work has been done prior to you getting to your potentiation, and this is just 
giving you like the last transition to be able to truly peak and potentiate. So although this is the coolest, you're going to spend the least amount of time here, and it's going to need the most thought into what you do. Next would be preparatory, and this is going to be more of a transitory tool. This is going to be uh, using like alarm phases to like facilitate something. This is going to be uh, directly preceding the potentiation. So this is going to allow you to have a chronic uh, change in let's say enzymes or what you're going to be doing in like, as far as movements but it's going to be accompanied with a more moderate to higher amounts of volume, and it's a tool. So you're not going to stay in a preparation period for more than two to four weeks, regardless of what your goal is, because it's a transitory tool. So you're basically either going to be accumulating fatigue all year, potentiating, or somewhere in the middle. So lastly, that brings are, us are these, to... Are these, um, real quick, because you've not, uh, I, I suspect I know your answer, but uh, are these um, application-exclusive components, or is this something that's blended at all times? Um, that would depend on who your coach is. So the way I program, everything is kind of like a blended thing, so you don't necessarily notice that it's happening. But if you want to use, like, a very, very, like, cut-and-dry block periodization, it would function as well. These are more so just lenses to look through. So before you actually put a pen to the paper or start typing any type of movement prep, I would assume people are thinking, this is going to be a preparation block, so this is what I should be doing. So I'm just trying to get people not to type randomly or think randomly. Understand where you're going with what you're about to do. That way you can do it even better. And then the, the second question that flows from that one is, what is the – and I've asked this question – and then I'm not throwing you under the bus in, in any way, my friend. I'm really not. But I've asked some really high or supposedly very high caliber experts, and they've just given me a blank, glassy stare after this question. Say you take the necessary steps in your movement prep, in your periodization, in your blocks, to generate one of these responses. What is the duration of action after cessation? Say you move on to a new block, how long do you continue to get the effects of that previous one before they attenuate from lack of use? So I'm going to give you two different answers. The first answer is going to be more concrete. This fact uh, actually comes from the ACSM. So I mean, one of the few things that they have actually really contributed to the performance community. Um, it's actually very, very – these are extremely important facts they've accumulated. Um, aerobic adaptations can linger around – for as long as you want if they have somewhere between two and four, uh, I guess you would call activation se uh, sessions of the skills you want to keep with you. So that means you can lose them in as little as 48 uh, hours or more without using them to some degree. So you'll be able to keep most of it if you take two or three days off, but your peak ability to aerobically use energy will be decreased. So as long as you can kind of maintain this, Somewhere, like, if you're doing it twice a week, you better be training damn hard. And if you're going to be trying to maintain it with four sessions a week, you can use it to a lesser degree. So that's aerobic. Um, I guess you would call elastic adaptations can be maintained with a little bit less. So this could be, like, more of one to three sessions a week. Obviously, one session, you better be going damn hard. And three, you could kind of keep it around. And this is to maintain, like, a peak level adaptation. So maybe not 100% but probably like 92 to 98 as like arbitrary numbers. It'll be more than you would keep if you were to completely stop 
training it altogether, but it's not going to completely be able to derail you from 100 plus percent peak. So the next answer to that question is that comes down to the priorities in which you program ahead of time. So for example, let's say you're a strong man and for ease there's a contest in April and an athlete of mine is doing it. All the events are maxes basically. So you're going to have qualities that you reverse engineer as important when you create his program. So let's say if it's a very, very heavy show, I'm going to prioritize obviously his ATPCP system primarily. So going backwards, that would mean he's not going to be doing any event for over 20 seconds, 30 seconds hopefully. So his lactic system would probably contribute the least to this. So when he's furthest from the contest, I'm going to be doing some lactic work. And I only want to maintain that to a very, very small degree because without getting into like a whole other topic, I only have one to two qualities that I deem favorable that are adaptations from lactic work for the strongman. So those two adaptations I'm going to pepper in during his deload, I don't deload, but like transition, that yeah. type of day. You're going to pepper those in throughout the year and you're going to pepper those in prior to his peaking or potentiation phase. So that way you can get maximum benefit for, let's say, two weeks, maybe four weeks, depending on how long you have to train. But they're going to be peppered in, in my opinion, throughout the year to get the adaptation you want. So obviously you can never keep 100% of it, but they will linger around as long as you want them to based on what you do. Does that kind of answer the question? It, it does. It does, definitely. Um, I've, that, to me, is a fascinating topic. Um, I've spent my entire life trying to seek the perfect powerlifting peak, and that's the uh, the really the crux of the question is, once a skill is developed, how long does it linger, and how much or little effort must you put into maintaining it? And uh, I've never found a perfect solution, obviously, because I don't think a perfect solution actually exists. But uh, I'm, I'm ever honing it, and... Uh, Information like you just provided is is part of that honing process. So I uh, I thank you for that, and uh, it it does work into the conversation nicely. For sure. Well, quickly, I'm just going to go back to that one more time, especially your example specifically. So let's say you're a powerlifter trying to have the biggest peak of your life. Um, You could do only three sessions, let's say, a week of extremely heavy peaking-based resistance training. Let's just use that as an example. So if you want to maintain a appreciable level of aerobic adaptation without it potentially impairing any of your lifts the day you do them, you can do some low-level aerobic adaptation in between them. So now you're keeping the aerobic adaptation that's going to support maximum strength production, uh, maximum ATP usage and recovery without it directly impairing the activity you'll do that day. Because the next section is where I'm going to talk about um, acute and chronic changes in maximum recoverable volume and kind of draw a full circle with the question. But just for that specific example, you can easily maintain a less favorable or less needed adaptation in active recovery sessions. So this would be a training session that would have an RPE of like below a six, we would say. And it's going to be get in, get out, and just get things done that you need to get done. So like you said, if you're trying to increase the duration of, let's say, an aerobic adaptation, you can very, very easily, twice a week, three times a week, get into the gym for an hour, do something a little extra, and you'll get more out of it in your training. And if you can do that, you can even extend the length of your peaking phase. I, I buy all of that. Absolutely. Cool. 
So um, that almost transitions me perfectly into, like, the last thing I wanted to talk about today, and that's going to be, like, direct application of the movement prep, um, how I set up my movement prep, and I'm going to quickly talk about how it actually affects maximum recoverable volume on a day-to-day basis, a week-to-week basis, and a long-term basis. So um, first, there's four basic steps to creating, in my opinion, an effective movement prep. Step one is restore. Step two, set the stage. Step three, work on something. And then step four is drive it home. So these are like ambient steps. They kind of transition smoothly. And essentially, they're just trying to paint a picture of restore is going to be some specific corrective biomechanical uh, movement, uh, mobility exercise that's going to set up advantageous physics for what you actually want to do that day. Because mobility is really just changing the physics of what you do. So let's say we defined like 90 degrees at the hip as the most advantageous lever for what we're about to do. Something you would do in your restore would be, okay, my hips are at uh, 75. I'm going to increase or, uh, the angle at my hip, get it to 90 before I start training. Now I'm anthropometrically better at what I'm about to do before I even start changing anything. So that's what's going to happen in your restore. Specifically change biomechanics for the training you want to do, whether it be chronically, like you know all year round you suck at hip flexion, so you can work on that all year round, or you know acutely today, like my hips are just really jacked up today, so I'm going to work on just this today. But that's essentially step one, restore. Biomechanically get better. Step two is set the stage. So this is where um, your paradoxical effect of hypoxia is going to come in during, like, the exact onset of actual exercise. So step two is when you actually start moving for real, for real. Restore is, like, kind of what the name connotates. It's restorative. You're going to feel better. This is going to actually get you to train. Step two is going to start the enzymatic process of the training. So just start getting your body ready to perform something more specific. This is just getting, like, the blood flowing, as people would say. Like, this is the primary part of getting work done. So this could be something as simple as a prowler push or as complex as, like, a Turkish get-up medley with, like, more specific exercises with it. Uh, work on something is step three. So step three and step four can kind of meld together, but this means you've already gotten the enzymatic stage set. Now we're going to target specific movement and neural-based activities that we want to target. So Work on something could be like a sensory plyometric I've referred to on the show in the past, which could be like um, something that enriches proprioception, that has minimal force production capabilities um, as far as plyometrics go, and is going to increase like the ability to decelerate force. So when I say sensory, the goal is no longer pro- uh, power, is now proprioception. So this could be work on something. Or if you play a sport, let's say you run track, this could be where you do like uh, implement a drills, skips, all that type of stuff. You're working on something under the enzymatic conditions you wish to wish to work them under. And finally, step four can also be a transitory um, out of step three is you're just going to drive it home. So if you're a sprinter and you did your skips, this is where you're actually going to do some preliminary skip, uh, sprinting. If you're a weightlifter, this is going to be like the last. Uh, power plyo before you bench. So your bench is your resistance training that day. Driving it home could be plyo push-ups. Working on something could be scat push-ups, activating protraction, retraction in relation to the ribs in the push-up position. Setting the stage 
could be something as simple as like some spider crawls and some walking and sled dragging. And then if you're still going with the notion of benching, restore could be increasing humoral IR. So that's just, just trying to paint the picture of what you're looking for. Again, the steps are restore, set the stage, work on something, and drive it home. So if you attack those four concepts when you create your movement prep prescription, you've already gone through the steps necessary to make you better at the bench press you're about to do or, like, the wrestling workout you're about to work on or whatever it may be. You've already gone through the steps to make yourself better that day, make yourself better tomorrow, and for all the coming sessions. So um, just three things to keep in mind whenever you're programming your movement prep is think logical. So, I mean, this should be applied to anything in life. Hopefully use logic. But just think, is this actually going to have high transfer? Does this even fit what I'm doing today? Stuff like that. The second one is a little counterintuitive. I actually recommend people reverse engineer all of their programming, but specifically movement prep. So start with the qualities you'd like to peak. Start with the movements you want to peak with and start with the peak phase that you'd like to use and just regress until you get to very, like week one, I would say, of your training program. Because this is going to, like, peaking is what everyone cares about the most, especially in strength sports. If you only have one Super Bowl every fucking year, like, peaking is extremely important. So start with the most important and the highest transfer, and working backwards gives you more ability to objectively look at your program as a whole. Versus when you're working week one, week two forwards, you're now starting with what's, I would say, least important, and you're trying to meld it to the peak. Versus ver- okay. vice versa, where your program let, let, let me ask a practical application question there is, what are reasonable uh, incremental uh, changes? What, what, how, uh, how dynamic and how changeable are these systems? What sort of progression should be built in or, or not? Is this a non-progressional and just simply a do-it-and-get-the-effect kind of an affair? Um, you can get as fancy as you want. I tend to lean towards, since I typically follow a block-style periodization, linear periodization on a small scale works extremely well with movement prep because, like, for a strength athlete, I've talked previously, the energy demands aren't incredibly high. So you can start with, let's say it's a four-week block. On the first week, we're going to do 600 feet of prowler, um, 30 single leg squats total, and 30 single leg deadlifts total. And then next week we'll do 650 uh, feet of prowler, increase five reps on each one, and go up that way. So you could do that. So um, perhaps a ten, perhaps a 10% increase in volume per, per block? Yeah, you could even uh, – the minutia matters with movement prep. What I've found is even changing something as simple as how you perform it, so even taking the same 30 reps, 30 reps, and 600 feet, if you split it up a bit differently, you're going to tap into slightly different energy systems. Uh, the timing is going to be different. The amount of oxygen is going to be different. So you can even take the same volume and program it a bit different, get a new effect without even having to increase the volume, if that makes sense. Interesting. Interesting. So movement prep, I think the reason I love it so much is because of the creativity behind it and, like, the generalized blanket statements you can use to program as specifically as you want. Because even if we're talking one athlete's biggest peak of his life, that's arguably the most specific program you can type. You're going to still be using the same general concepts and pathways I talked about today. Regardless of how specific you are, there's a generalization that is always going to apply to every single scenario. So that's trying to, like the picture I'm trying to build is use the generalizations to make every single specific scenario you do better. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then finally, the, the last little tip, um, for programming your own movement prep is 
program it completely separately. Um, and that, I mean, just in like the visual sense, don't program your movement prep and then immediately move into the resistance training for that day. Because what that's going to do or what I've noticed anecdotally is that takes your vision from a wide perspective of the entire mesocycle to one day or one just microcycle. And that's not the point of movement prep, although it is almost the inherent point to resistance training. Resistance training, it's going to be changing daily. Each microcycle can be drastically different. But movement prep, like Broderick and I just said, can be almost unchanged for a much longer period of time while you still reap the benefits. So program it separately, peak it separately, and don't start your resistance training programming until you're done programming your movement prep. Because now you can look at it when you're done programming and see these are the conditions under which I will be bench pressing. Now what bench press protocol best suits these conditions? Because I've run into the issue of, okay, this is where I want to peak the volume for my movement prep. And you look at the day and you're like, oh, I also peaked my resistance training volume this day. This is not going to work out well. And now you have conflicts of interest within your own programming. So I just recommend programming completely separately and then come back to programming as a whole at the end. And then finally, um, if there's – Broderick, do you have any questions before I make my final few points? Um, actually, I do, but I think I'm going to, I'm going to do it in a wrap-up fashion. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm enthralled. Continue, please. Perfect, perfect. So essentially, now I'm going to like bring everything back to MRV. So now that we've talked about pathways, we've talked about how to apply it, uh, the methodologies I use to apply it, I just want to tie in how they're going to impact each and every day. And I'm going to kind of bring each metabolic pathway I talked about back into uh, the circulation. So let's start with just one day. First time you ever do this style of movement, you are either going to feel the best you've ever felt or the worst you've ever felt. And this is more related to novelty style things. But what's happening is on a short scale, you're going to have an extreme peak most likely. So the first week or two you do this, you're going to most likely have an extreme increase in MRV. You will probably be able to handle more load, more volume, or just feel like the current, what you're doing from load or volume, is easier. And I've accumulated this anecdotally, and just that, obviously, just anecdotally, and logically looking at what I know, I've seen this time and time again, when the novelty is highest. So this is someone going from, let's say, 531, like a very, very validated and simple program to something that's completely new. There's a, the brain is going to freak out, essentially. This is going to uh, go along with, like, alarm phases and super – like, this is a minor super compensatory response. So you're going to have a drastic increase in MRV lasting a couple days to maybe two weeks um, when you first implement movement practice. Then you're going to start to feel bad, and it's going to start to fatigue you. And that would make sense because we talked about the three Ps before. After the first week or two, you're starting to move into your um, putting in the bank. This is going to have to do with progressive overload. And in simplest terms, that's the principle you're applying. You're only progressively overloading week to week by small increments, let's say, and your MRV is going to drop below what it would be at baseline. So meaning you will actually be able to handle less load and less volume than you would if you didn't do the movement prep. This is a good thing because this is why I call that P putting in the bank because this is what's going to allow you to peak down the line because now you're performing, let's say, it's not going to be a big drop. Let's say you're performing 85 to 95% of the same MRD you would have if you didn't do the movement prep. The conditions in which you're doing them 
should be far greater as far as taxing and as far as adaptation. So although you're only handling a slightly less amount of MRV, what that should resonate to the brain's adaptive processes should be far, far greater. Like, let's even use the arbitrary number of, like, 115 MRV. So you can safely do more on each day's training session without having to kill yourself anymore, if that makes sense. And then finally, um, peaking movement prep should come uh, the week before your resistance training peak. Again, this is anecdotal just from working with people. So peak the volume the week before or a week or two before you'd like to peak your resistance training. And this is going to now for enough, allow for enough time to recover the processes that you've been taxing each and every day and have a small super compensatory change in the graph of MRV that will allow you to handle a little bit more for the behavioral portion of your peak, which is the last week or two. Very good. Uh, I do have a bunch of questions. Do you, you want to wrap anything up, wrap, wrap up any tales before I, before, before I hit you? Um, I don't think so. I hope I did a decent job of painting the picture of, like, objectively looking at it, objectively thinking how you do it, and then try to attack the processes you want to in the most logical way. No, I think you did an outstanding job, and I think, for to, to be completely fair and honest, um, you, you did such a job that it, it renders most of my questions either redundant or uh, so esoteric they're probably not relevant to most of the listeners, but... Um, a good re- good part of the reason why I have this radio show is for me to learn a lot of these things and for me to have access to people like you. So I'm going to indulge. Um, <laughs> so so here we go. Um, I very much appreciate the fact that you pointed out the concept of peaking your movement prep uh, in terms of volume and intensity as much as two weeks prior to your, let's say in my in, in my uh, uh, version, a powerlifting event before the peak of your actual competitive event. Um, the first question I want to ask is, okay, then how much support work needs to be done between that peak and the actual contest event, In the, let's say in the context of a, of a powerlifting event, how much uh, supportive your maintenance type work needs to be done in the middle there? And then secondly, how would the whole concept of movement prep or affect replace or support um, sports-specific plyometrics? Okay, so I'll attack the first question first. So, okay. um, essentially what uh, – can you rephrase that question one more time, Broderick? I'm sorry. Well, well I just Too want many to know – like, you, you, you peaked your, your movement prep volume and intensity two weeks out, and then obviously two weeks later there's going to be a powerlifting event. How much Perfect. support work or maintenance work – needs to be done in the interim, and vaguely, very vaguely, what would that look like? Okay, so um, the reason that question, like, has my thoughts rushed to my head is because it's actually kind of a subtraction problem, the way my brain sees it. So okay. this program obviously individual, and prior to writing the program, you're going to assess the energy demands of the sport. So now we know energy demands of the sport. Let's also look at what the athlete you're programming for is lacking in those energy so let's say um, in an assessment I determined that this athlete has a high amount of max strength, but his repeatability is extremely poor, and even his second attempt lacks velocity in comparison to his first attempt. So that would paint a picture to me is that on a bioenergetic and substrate level, he needs help. So for his peaking phase, I'm probably going to pump him with more volume 
then I would say the well-balanced power lifter if he's going to be uh, unbalanced. So his uh, peak phase for movement prep is going to encompass a much greater amount of volume than the energy demand of his sport needs. So if we're looking at a graph, a threshold-based graph, he's going to say let's set be like 30 to 40% above the threshold that he needs for the sport. So during um, his like, let's say drop-off period after his peak, I would drop all athletes to just above the energy th- uh, demands they need for the sport. So um, I hope that kind of paints the picture of the drop-off can be as little or as big as possible. And what I typically do during drop-offs, I guess you would call this like a pro tip, is I try to take advantage of novelty stimulus one last time. So this is when I increase complexity in replacement for volume the most, for saving time, for the novelty experience of the complex plyo, and just to let the athlete mentally deload a bit. So um, as Nick mentioned on the last podcast we did with him, like some of the movement prep I prescribe, especially when volume is high, can be anywhere from 60 to 75 minutes of just straight work. Like you're getting 45 seconds rest max in between like rounds of whatever you may be doing, and it's just straight work for that time. So let's say this power lifter, we just, like I just talked about unbalanced, is going to be doing, let's say, 60 minutes of total work during his peak phase. I would probably drop him down somewhere between 35 to 40 minutes of total work, but it, that work would look very different. So I would increase complexity to the most, like, the uh, highest transfer of the sport. So if we're talking powerlifting and we're talking uh, squat, I would be using, like, a depth jump with a repeat jump immediately after. So that would be the most complex he does. Because it's the most complex, it demands the least amount of volume. And since there's already a drop in volume accompanying it, he needs even less. So now your movement prep just went from, like, 60 minutes of straight work to 35 minutes of a couple of sets with more rest. So you kind of see where I'm going with this now, Broderick? I, I, I do. I do. In, in, in essence, it's following basically the dictums of all kind of, I hate the wording and I think so do you, but the you know, kind of a deload and uh, re- refocus on momentary specificity. Or, or, yeah, so or we're necessity. picking one or two qualities. Maybe not, even, maybe not even specificity as much as necessity. Uh, I think might be a better wording. But, yeah, okay. I think necessity has a better connotation. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that's basically like, oh, so basically, like, to rephrase it one last time is the accumulation to the peak, so the putting in the bank before you peak, is as much as you need it to be. If you have, like, that's why I say objectivity is so important. If you look at yourself and you're like, damn, dude, like, I'm that type of guy, no matter how much prowler I do, I just, I just, I'm never in good oxidative shape. My heart rate recovery sucks. I wake up with a high resting heart rate. I just, I can't do this. So if that's you, you're unfortunately going to have to suck a little more wind than most people during your accumulation phase. But that means when you peak in the next phase, the potentiation part of your movement prep, you're going to reap the benefits of that much more. So I'll drop the volume maybe a little bit more than I would with most people if you're the guy that's sucking extra wind during your sets, but you're going to be able to get a much greater benefit out of it because of that. Agreed. Okay. 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 Then, and then, then the, the, the second half of that question is then how and where and, and, and just, just what would be needed to integrate or at least not offend with sports-specific plyometrics? 
So, um, I have, I know we've talked about this. I have a kind of view on plyometrics as a whole. I also kind of group throws or certain types of throws into plyometrics as well. So I almost give them equal, equal, uh, weight when programming. So plyometrics can really be instilled into any program, again, depending on your objective assessments and necessities. So um, I break plyometrics in down to two categories, sensory and power. And I briefly mentioned that before. So a sensory plyometric can actually be implemented all year round without any changing, without um, – you can even keep the same sensory plyometric for 12 weeks at a time. Because the goal is proprioception, the goal is kinesthetic awareness of the environment, and typically the goal is like decelerating force, it's absorbing ground reaction force, it's the background noise that you need to be good at the power plyometrics, and to give po- power plyometrics then this, uh, the like, pizzazz and the power that they truly have in training. So like, the impact of depth jumps is only as big as the validity they have in the program they're still not. I hope that made sense. So the, the plyometric can really have two different coins when you apply it. So one end, sensory, can be applied all year round, but the typical plyometric that I call the power plyometric is going to be something that can only be intricately balanced with the actual resistance training you're doing. So all the old school coaches who are familiar with plyos know is that they're going to take away from it. So if you're in the peaking phase of, say, for the same powerlifter who's unbalanced, who's extremely powerful with an extremely poor work capacity, a plyometric is a pretty powerful tool to use for him, but it's also a pretty taxing tool because you're working on his weakness uh, before you get to his sport-specific training. So this also kind of ties back to your last question of dropping off volume during the peak and how what I refer to as increasing complexity along with dropping volume. So the plyometric is kind of your ace card. So let's talk peak phases. So you're coming off your accumulation, and you've been using only and solely sensory plyometrics this whole time because you've chosen uh, work capacity as the primary quality you're attacking here. So when you get to his peak or potentiation phase, that sensory plyo is going to kind of fade into his like work capacity work and little and dissipate to a small degree. And the power plyometric is going to come in, and it's going to have more rain over what happens with the movement prep. But that has to be intricately balanced with the resistance training. And that's why it's difficult to use plyometrics in strength sports is because you're almost taxing the same exact system in almost the same exact way with very similar force units prior to doing it. So it's an intricate balance, but I still think they're absolutely necessary and there's a lot of warranty of using them. But um, it has to be the right lens, and it is a little more difficult to program the, like I say, power plyometric in strength sports than a sensory plyometric because of the nature of the sport inherently. Interesting. One one just quick random, uh, it's not random, but one quick off the cuff. It's, I find this fascinating when two people that are unassociated in a specific point have exactly the same concept but we use different nomenclature. And that is, I think of plyometrics exactly the same way you do in, where you say sensory and power, except I would say uh, general as for your sensory, and then I would say peaking. You know, I think of your depth jumps and your bo- truly ballistic, uh, low, you know, really really high impulse stuff as specifically for peaking. So I call them peaking plyometrics. But we, we're talking mm-hmm. about exactly the same stuff. We just chose different language. I find that fascinating. Absolutely. 
Well, it's um, true because that means we're both taking objective lenses as what's the adaptation of this plyo? Like, uh, exactly. a bilateral drop off a box is still plyometric, but, like, how could you even say it's close to a depth jump? It's not. You know what I mean? Uh, agreed. Um, then then this is off the topic of your whole thing, but since I have access to you and I've got you so primed or uh, or uh, potentiated, potentiated, if you will, <laughs> I have you so goddamn potentiated, let me ask you this. What would you think of the efficacy of, and again, I'm going to use my pet subject of a powerlifter. We do some really awesome Andrew Triana, uh movement prep. We, we morph, we kind of use a transmutative little moment, and then we get into our core lifts and say we, uh, you know, I don't know, we're going to uh, bench press and overhead press. And we, we do that, and it's really awesome because it's properly potentiated. Do you think there's reasonable uh, logic and efficacy in then doing, quote, peaking, non-general peaking plyometrics in a post-load-bearing scenario essentially to finish the workout or to hone the nervous system in the, in that post-training condition. Do you think that would be a reasonable approach? So are we talking putting plyometrics uh, as like past action potentiation, French contrast type thing, or are we talking like accessory work? Like, you know, I mean, like where in the session exactly would it fit? It, it, would be, it would be the final, it would be the final group of work in the session. Now, exactly what you want to define that as, you know, past action potentiation or what you want to call that is, but the general structure of the workout would be movement prep, you know, peak, you know, peak type weight training, and then post-weight training plyometrics in a, in a peaking scenario. Do you think that would be uh, absolute overkill or do you think that would be workable? So it's going to be one of two things. It's either going to be absolute overkill or it's going to work extremely, extremely fucking well. But that depends on the athlete and your uh, prior objective assessment. So let's say in this ungodly sacrilegious paradigm, we have a power lifter who has a gifted work capacity but isn't necessarily great at producing force, which I guess would touch me yeah, I, with the sport, but whatever. I, I, know, um, I know one of those guys. I, I know that yeah. guy. I know that guy. You are that guy. But um, so let's say that's you. If you program your movement prep resistance training and the, I guess, the last plyos together and you have the work capacity base that you would need prior, then that is going to work extremely well. Because let's go back to, like, the transmutative properties of those type X fibers. If you're that guy, you know, your nickname happens to be, like, the slow-mo homo, you're probably going to be, like, mostly slow fibers. So you're going to want to do everything in your power, especially in a sport that's, like, solely absolute strength-based. You're going to want to do everything in your power to pull those type 2 Xs towards um, – or type, well, I just said it, but type Xs towards type 2s. You want to get them more anaerobic. You want to get them more efficient at uh, maximum shortening velocities and, like, those strength-based qualities. So – you need to bombard yourself with stimulus that says that. And that um, template or whatever you want to call it, that scenario you just gave me, is doing that. But what it isn't doing is it's not adhering to, um, I guess you would call it, like, the laws of bioenergetics necessarily. Because theoretically, by then, you would be done. Like, you wouldn't have the ability to keep going. But like I said, 
because you're choosing that person who's got a naturally good work capacity and naturally has the ability to keep going and, like, go deep, deep, deep into that elastic energy system, that's an extremely effective and extremely specific protocol that I would say would work well. Interesting. I certainly appreciate your feedback on that. And I, and I was very specifically asking about me because ultimately yeah, everything is – Ultimately, everything is about me, and the rest of you are purely on the periphery. So <laughs> there, there's a bit of honesty you don't get on other radio shows to your listeners. <laughs> Only on SPR. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, that's outstanding. That's amazing. Um, I, do, I do wonder a couple of quick things. With the volume, and these are just random questions that I that I kind of amassed on my little sticky notes here. Um, what is with the volume of movement prep you're doing? You know, as much as say sixty minutes, could possibly I think even at some point you mentioned seventy five minutes. Um, uh-huh. My quest, my question is twofold. One, does that radically decrease any need for? external, you know, quote, aerobic exercise outside of perhaps like active rest or anything? Does it does it relieve the necessity to program any fitness component in an overall training cycle? And then secondly, um, do you find the potential problem with, um, with, with, with joint problems, you know, with, with repetitive, you know, jumps or, or you know, uh, you know, prowler pushes or anything, are you finding any, you know, ankle, knee, hip problems from that volume of repetitive work? So I'll answer the second question first just because it's a little easier. Um, I have in the past, and the easiest fix for it was program smarter. Uh, like, okay. Sometimes I run into issues where it's like, wow, why are my knees feel like shit? And then I look at my last two weeks of training, and I'm like, wow, I've been jumping and pushing the prowler every day for six weeks now. That makes sense. So, I mean, right. you, like, you just got to have enough of different modalities, have the creativity, have the open-mindedness, and have the uh, application of these general concepts I talked about strong enough in your toolbox that you can apply them to anything. Like if you think about it objectively enough, you should be able to make a walk around your park, like a, a walk around a local park fit the like the paradoxes I talked about with uh, the mechanism of actions, like the general concepts. So, I mean, I feel like you're only going to run into issues by your own, like, ignorance, essentially. Limitations. Uh, by your, by your yeah. own intellectual and, and, and imaginative limitations. Very good. Exactly. Very good. So, and, and then, um... As far know. as, you know, as far as additional programming for, you know, potential fitness, is that just off the board because you're not dealing with athletes, quote, lacking fitness? Um, um you know, well, where, where so the best way to answer that is actually kind of how I started the movement prep concept. Well, I don't want to say started it, but how I began implementing it with myself and my athletes was about four years ago. So um, Strongman in and of itself is like a high energy demand sport, especially at the higher level I've talked about in the past. The better you get at Strongman, it's almost like the less heavy the sport gets. It's very difficult to find a show that's truly, in the bioenergetic sense, very heavy for an, a proficient level strongman. Because if you're going to win the contest, you're doing the most rep out of everyone. So typically, even if it's heavy and you're going to win the event, you're getting probably five to eight reps on like a heavy day. But if it's not heavy, you're going somewhere in the 20s or like at least near that. So that in and of itself for one event has a very, very different energy system demand. You don't know, say powerlifting, where every single time, unless you have extreme grinders, your time under tension, the amount of work you're doing, the energy demand of the sport is relatively baseline or flatline. So, um, 
what was happening was I wanted to get more volume in my resistance training because I was a weak athlete. I wanted to get stronger, and I couldn't get stronger if I was still trying to promote these fitness qualities on the side. So that's kind of where, like, the uh, – issues with concurrent periodization like different types of periodizations come in where it's like you don't have enough time you don't have enough energy and you definitely don't have the lifestyle set up to hit everything you want to hit the way you want to hit it and the volume you want to hit it to get the adaptation you want to hit it like neurologically it won't work and your life won't let, let it work so i ended up having to implement more bang for your buck protocols and then that's kind of how i stumbled upon to where i am today is you're approaching these, like, generalized fitness concepts that matter. Like, the ACSM is 150 minutes of walking. It works if you do it five days a week just because you're changing, like, in a very, very minor sense, your heart rate variability. Like, you're Absolutely. improving your ability to deal with stress in a less stressful way. So that's – you need that. If you lack that basic heart rate variability skill, or I don't want to call it skill, but ability of, like, the heart to do that, then you're inherently worse at every single sport. Like we've talked about previously, impulse is one of the most important dictators in athletes, regardless of sports, regardless of performance, regardless of who you are. If you're naturally gifted in the impulse sense, you're probably better at most sports, regardless of the sport. So fitness is the same thing. It's inversely correlated with, like, death. If you can get up off the floor with less appendages, you're less likely to die. If you can walk up the stairs with a less change in your heart rate, you're less likely to die. And, like, the same thing with leaning out, those core health qualities transfer to performance. So if you're ultimately better at, like, general everyday fitness, walking up the stairs with less change in heart rate, you're going to be better at your sport just because you're healthier, your blood's working better, all your insides are working better. So there's almost a dose-dependent relationship to that. The more vagal tone you can have intervene in your daily life outside of training, the more volume you should theoretically be able to handle in training because – like metabolically, you're using different energy outside of training. By the time you get in training, you should have a buildup. So you? what was happening was you just can't get enough in the week done. So I just had like the movement prep approach, the fitness qualities while trying to potentiate, while trying to get my neurological stuff done, while getting my movement quality stuff done. So that's kind of how I came into like this cluster of stuff I call movement prep. You just said in a very roundabout way, and not not that what you said was roundabout, it was very specific to the question asked, but if you listen to that again in in a very general and less specific way, you actually just said something that is my underlying premise and is going to be the overlying concept in this series of podcasts that this will be one of in terms of an overall talk and concept about Training, programming, and MRV as a concept, and that is something you just alluded to, is that in a big sense, overall fitness really is the ultimate dictator of your MRV. As you become ever more fit, you theoretically should be able to tolerate ever more work, and the converse of that. If you're in shitty physical condition, your ability to tolerate volume of work is probably shitty. Um, I know that's an incredible generalization, but most good ideas can be boiled down to an incredible generalization. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I find that fascinating that you just said that rather unintentionally, and uh, I, I think that'll actually be the bulletin title for this whole thing. <laughs> Even better. Yeah. So that covers all of that. Is there anything you want to say before we go? And then I have one uh, sarcastic question for you. 
No. Uh, actually, no, I have nothing. I have a good joke for you later. <laughs> well, my sarcastic question for you is, why in the world are you not putting this together in the tome that it needs to be so that the general public can really get their hands on this practical information? Why are you not penning the, the Andrew Triana Movement Prep Bible? Why, why is that not forthcoming, or is it? Um, honestly, so there's kind of two answers. One, um, my best friend Nick and I are like in the process of actually creating a platform of our own to bridge that. But the overarching theme on why I'm not more fake is I still think I can get better. I'm getting better, like, like knowledge and academia-wise every day. Like, every time I read something new, like, I feel like there's still so much I haven't been able to touch, and I think I can get so much better and smarter still that I don't want to prematurely reach out if I'm not going to have the best possible product of all time. So let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Let let me tell you this, and you will do as you choose because ultimately all decisions are yours, but I'm going to tell you that you possess a relatable body of knowledge so far beyond the other experts that I speak to on a regular basis that those experts would buy your fucking book and be happy to pay you. Whether or not it's only 50% of the overall body of knowledge that you can one day present, that's what volume two, three, and four are for. I'm telling you right now that I know PhD caliber people that would be happy to write you a $100 check for what you know right now today. Uh, I just, I really feel compelled to say, I really feel compelled to say that because I really believe you're selling yourself short on what you have to offer uh, athletics at large. So, anyway, I meant that as a no, little bit a sarcastic, but, uh, but I, I really do, in fact, mean that. I really do. Um, oh, and by the way, just in case you're not aware of this, I'm one of the assholes that will pay write you a check for that book. So, uh, as, long as, <laughs> mine's, as, long, as long as mine's signed, though, that's, that's relevant. But anyway. Of course. Uh, so, the joke I wanted to make, it's not really a joke, but so when I was reviewing my literature, I couldn't help but laugh, or not laugh, but just kind of snicker at, like, a chemistry joke I saw with AMPK. Do you know what the actual nomenclature for AMPK is? Like, what it is? Somewhere in the back of my head, I actually do. Go ahead and rattle it off. Hydroxymethyl glutony CoA reductase kinase. So I was like, right. wait a minute. And then I, I, like, I don't know how the fuck my brain even, like, made this connection, but I went back to my exercise physiology, I'm like, wait, is AMPK, like, almost NADPH? Yeah. I don't know, it's just, like, it's crazy how, and, like, just, like, little things, like, homocysteine, how it ties into VEGF and AMPK, too, it's just, like, a lot of weird connections. Well, not, not just that, but, again, you know, being the biologist, as you said, we, we each have our own lens, and my lens is always through biology, and to some degree even kind of more of a molecular biology. And the reality is on that fundamental level of cell action, there's shockingly few real movers in terms of actual cell function. It really all boils down to these very few nuclear transmission and, uh, enzymes and cofactors. It's really amazing that almost anything you can name, you know, in the Krebs cycle, you can ultimately draw a line back to cyclic AMP, AMPK, all of these really mm -hmm. fucking fundamental things. Um, there's just only so many movers in there. Um, it's just the way it is. Yeah, it was just an appreciation I didn't really have before.
Yeah, it's it's interesting. At the end of the day, um, it's like uh, you know a perfect example is I just did an Australian podcast about um, uh, about M tour, the big M tour, you know, pathway, and and I really the kind of the overlying message I left them with is I was like, it's the most gigantic and fascinating thing that you could ever talk about, but on an actual practical application, it has nothing to do with nothing. Um, it's far too da- far downstream for you to directly affect it. It's your big picture actions that will ultimately, eventually affect or not affect mTOR. And, and mm-hmm. you know, kind of what you're alluding to is the same thing. Is uh, on the you know, it's it's like that whole pushing a button to bring the elevator in terms of you know stimulating muscle growth. As stupid as that analogy is. You really don't have to know what the fuck's going on behind that door. You just know that if you push the button and wait long enough, the door will open. <laughs> yep, yep. That's kind of where you're. That's kind of where you're at with that. It's it's interesting, uh, but at the same time, it's it's intellectual masturbation left to people like you and I. Maybe, maybe yeah. more you than I. I'm getting old and tired. <laughs> no, how old are you, Broderick? You're not that old, man. Um. Well, I, in 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 actual years, I'm 45. But in angry anabolic years, yeah, in, in angry anabolic years, that's like four hundred and seven. It's really fucking old. <laughs> angry anabolic years. That's a great. Hey, that's a whole new AA right there. Yeah, I, yeah exactly. Through that. Yeah, I've got it. I've. <laughs> you got it down. Uh, you know, it's it's funny you say the AA. Uh, I just wrote I just wrote the rough draft of an article typed titled AAS. Slash A S S, um, anabolic androgenic slash uh, anabolic uh, steroid shenanigans. That's the title. A S S. Exactly. Good one. Exactly. So that's the title of that forthcoming piece. But anyway, Andrew, I am absolutely delighted you came on and gave us this talk. And uh, again, just to reinforce, this is one piece of hopefully an ongoing number of talks with a number of different experts all tying together training structure, programming, and how it relates to the bigger picture of general health, general fitness, and this elusive, all-encompassing concept of MRV, or if you don't like using proprietary language, just your total ability to do work and how to distribute that across a training paradigm. So, It's rather apropos that we started with Andrew because, one, he's one of the literally smartest people I know, and, two, his area of expertise happens to be the beginning, if you will, of a workout in that it's movement prep or this kind of elaborate warm-up. So we'll move from there on to other aspects of training, but uh, we couldn't have possibly gotten a better start, and uh, we couldn't have possibly gotten a better start with a better person. So with that, Andrew, um, wrap this up. Tell us where people can find you. Tell us where people can find your forthcoming adventure with your uh, business slash training partner and uh, anything else we need to know before we sign off. Um, you can find me on Instagram or Facebook, Andrew Triana. Just search my name. It'll come up. I'm real simple. I don't have any fancy usernames or anything like that. My email is also just as simple. It's A Triana, my last name, so A-T-R-I-A-N-A at springfieldcollege.edu and uh, reach out to me through any avenue. I'm always looking to talk. And then uh, 
keep your eyes open for uh, the performance vibe. That's going to be headed by Nick Hadge and I, and we're going to be going public in the next month or two, actually. So uh, keep your eyes peeled for that as well. And is it possibly uh, too early to mention uh, the, the the possibility of a strongman promotion? Are we? Are, is that too soon? Or should we bring Not that up at a later date? Not at all. We're, we can uh, bring that. We, uh, Nick and I were going to pu- like go public and put that as one of the first things on the Instagram and stuff. So you could definitely talk about that. Um, yeah. I, the gym in which I train, which is an incredible multi-million dollar facility, um, made some overtures about the idea of me holding a strongman event there or a powerlifting event, and uh, I immediately realized that that is the ideal launch vehicle for Andrew and company, and so uh, we are in the process at this time of uh, working out the logistics for Andrew's newest adventure for the Vibe to be bringing their particular Vibe to the southern Delaware specifically Rise Adventure Fitness, and uh, once those details are worked out, we will most definitely do everything we can to put that out into the world and uh, get an even bigger audience than we already have. So with that, Andrew, my good friend, it's time to sign off. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, until next time, stay strong. Don't forget to sign up for the SPR and Evil Genius Sports Performance Newsletter via the Team Evil GSP website. Thank you for listening to Sports Performance Radio.